Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Most people go to workshops, pay me $1,000 for a day, and I blow their socks off. They cry and then go home and do nothing. They do nothing. And I think the problem we have with the times we are in is that there's so much content. All the time, there's like internet and everything all the time, podcasts, books, Instagram. It's just too much. It's like no one's hungry anymore because we're fed stuff all the time. This episode with the 10th and final presenter of Way Up North 2015 in Stockholm marks the end of this podcast series, or at least as we know it so far. We've been bantering ideas about what to do once we hit all 10 speakers and uh, come to the conclusion that we'd love to keep the podcast going. It might not happen right away now, but our goal is to have interviews every other week or so throughout the winter as well, and to speak with not only Way Up North presenters, but also other creatives in various fields. So if you have any ideas or thoughts on who you'd like to hear, please let us know. We'll be broadening the podcast and hopefully speak to more creatives outside of the wedding world as well. And we'd love to hear your suggestions, so uh, please look us up in social media, uh, Way Up North 2015, or uh, email us at info at Alright, so uh, this week we'll hear Jonas Peterson. We've known of Jonas since very early on in our wedding photography careers. And uh, we've known him in person since a few years back as well. And uh, we have nothing but positives to say. He is a living legend in the wedding photography world. And uh, we're so happy to have him at Way Up North. So uh, enough talking from me. Here is Cole's talk with Jonas Peterson from August 2015. Let's do it. Yep, I'm good. I'm not good with intros. I don't have one. <laughs> yeah. So that was the intro. Oh, cool. That's the best <laughs> intro so far, yeah. So, how's life? Life's good. Um, having some uh, uh, downtown, basically. I've uh, had a very uh, crazy first six months of this year traveling. Uh, I said I'd uh, slow down a bit, but this uh, first six months of this year has been uh, completely bananas traveling-wise. So it's nice to be in one spot and just relax for a bit, to be honest. And right now you're in Sweden. I am in Sweden. I'm in my uh, mother's sort of holiday house on an island called Gotland, which is in the Baltic Sea. And was this uh, vacation planned for quite a while, that you just wanted to go back to Gotland and chill out? or? Um, it's Yes and no. It was, uh, it's a pretty expensive trip. Uh, so it's more of a... Um, I haven't been back for a few years, uh, so it's, and my mom obviously wants to see my kids and stuff, so it was, I, knew, I know I have to go back now and then, and then it's like, it's going to be like a, a yeah, it's going to be a very expensive trip, so it's more a matter of, in the end, you'll just have to do it, but uh, it was sort of on the books for a while, but we didn't book tickets until the last uh, three weeks, I think, or something like that. So, Gotland for the non-Swedes or 
people who aren't familiar with it, it's, it's a fairly tiny little island, right? Yeah, it's about a, you could drive from the north to the south in about an hour and a half and west to east in about 30 minutes, I'd say. So it's uh, pretty small, yeah. And poking around on your your blog and things like that, it seems like Gotland is a place that you've mentioned uh, means a lot to you. You spent a lot of time there growing up, uh, like in the summers and whatnot. Yeah, so uh, it's, uh, yeah, it really is. Like We came here in uh, in the mid-70s, my parents came here, and basically my whole family goes here. So it's my my immediate family, uh, and then cousins and stuff. So it's it's like a big commune here almost. Uh, so we're in this house, and then my cousins are in a house just two doors down, basically. So in this small village we're in, um, yeah, it's a five or six families in my immediate family and an extended family are around. So it's a lot of big sort of family dinners and stuff, and uh, yeah, you can... Uh, drop your kids with your cousin, and then they see them later that night, and it's yeah, it's just pretty good. Perfect. Mm. But that, but that's obviously not where you're raised. You grew up in Gothenburg, Gilteborg. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I grew up there, and then we came here every summer. As soon as schools were out, we jumped in the car and then drove cross country, jumped on a ferry, and then ended up here. So I spent about half my summer vacation here in Gotland since I was uh, five, six years old, and then. Um, Till I was basically 20 uh, when I started traveling myself. Uh, so, yeah, so it's very dear to me. Gothenburg now, what's your relationship now with uh, that city? Do you ever go back there? Do you have any connection there at all? No, I don't. I don't go back at all. Uh, and people say, oh, Are you coming home? I was like, <laughs> Home. Uh, it's such a weird concept anyway when you travel. I mean, you travel as well. So, you, you know, home is where your loved ones are, basically. So, for me, that's just a place. And I have no one uh, family-wise who lives there anymore. So I have some friends and stuff, but I actually haven't been back for, I don't know how long, uh, five years maybe. So um, yeah, it holds no sort of significance for me uh, anymore, unfortunately. Uh, I was done with Gothenburg when I left. So yeah. Does Sweden have any significance for you now? It's weird when you have lived, uh, I lived in Australia for 11 years um, and I, I wouldn't call myself an Aussie in any way. Um, but I feel less Swedish now, and I feel very much a, um, without sounding too cliche, I feel like a world citizen in many ways. I, I come here and look at the weirdness of Sweden, but I can also see the weirdness of Australia and I can see everything with an outside perspective. I'm, I'm not very um, um, pro any of the countries. I mean, I can see the advantages and, the, and all the sort of uh, bad stuff as well, and uh, to my family's, um, yeah, they're not too happy with me complaining about Sweden and stuff. And I go, the Swedish summer is so beautiful. I'm like, yeah, all eight days of it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> now they get furious. Um, and yeah, so, but it, it is, if Sweden's, I don't think I'll be moving back. It's not like I miss anything. Um, like I love the Swedish sort of uh, system and all that. And it's, you're taken care of for life, basically. And it's really nice education-wise and to know all that. And it's, I mean, they say, that's the reason why we, uh, the Scandinavians or the Danish are considered the happiest people in the world. We're looked after by uh, by our government, but at the same time, it's dark from October till April. So it's not, um, I, I don't miss that, and I don't think I'll be going back. Um, for me, I build a home where I am, uh, and that is now Australia. That's where my 
loved ones are, and um, I'm happy to come back and visit Sweden like I do now. If I can come back here in July for two, three weeks, I'm like, that's it. I'm done. I don't need more than that. Um, so, yeah. So, were you raised, like, in a hippie commune? <laughs> no, it's not. Because uh, <laughs> you said you're raised, or it's a commune there is, now is what you said, and, and you're, a citizen, you're a citizen of the earth, so that's very hippie, yeah, yeah. kind of. Yeah, yeah. Well, not a commune in any way. Uh, my, it's a... Um, how should I describe my family? Uh, it's a mix of artists and teachers, basically. So it is kind of a liberal, leaning, left-wing sort of that uh, upbringing. Um, and so my mom's a painter, my grandma was a painter, and uh, my dad was a writer. And there's a bunch of those sort of people here as well. So it, um, you can call that what you want, but <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't necessarily make them hippies. But they yeah, are yeah, artistic uh, in many ways. And... Um, very much sort of um, supportive and you can do what you want in life and all that and no one has ever been forced to go to university if we don't want to and all that sort of stuff is you do do what you want to do be what you want to be uh, and I have that with me and in many ways I think my success if I've if I've ever had any comes from the fact that uh, I don't fear the choices I've made it's like I, I want to do this now and then I go for it and then and that's how I how I was brought up I think uh, there's no fear that I need to have a law degree or uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, if life is what it is and you go uh, have one shot at it, just uh, have fun with it. So, so your mom was a painter, so like that was it? She painted? Like when you... Well, it's more. my grandmother actually was a full-time painter. Uh, my mom did a lot of artistic things. Um, she works, uh, she paints, she does uh, a lot of stuff with fabrics and uh, she also she worked for a pottery but then she had kids she had me and my younger brother and I think she basically became a for a long time a stay-at-home mom uh, and did these things on the side but more than anything she had the best I mean the most important job in the world I think she was a stay-at-home mom um, and then so I wouldn't call her a painter per se um, but uh, when our when we moved out the kids moved out she picked that up again but um, Basically, for as long as I can remember, she was just a stay-at-home mom, um, and uh, yeah. So, but she does all the artistic things, and uh, the whole house where I'm sitting is full of her stuff that she's made, and and she still keeps making things. So, um, and, and your dad was he a journalist or was he like a fiction writer? What kind of writer was your dad? Mainly a journalist. Uh, he wrote books and stuff as well, but uh, mainly a journalist for the local newspaper in, in Gothenburg uh, or one of them. Um, so yeah. So you kind of evolved into a writer, I guess, in your 20s, or when you left school at least, did he have a big influence on your, on your writing path? Well, the weird thing is I think um, I grew up uh, not wanting to do what they do or did, uh, so I, I never wanted to do writing, and I certainly didn't want to be a journalist. That would be like the last thing I wanted to be. There's no, nothing sexy about that at all. Um, I never wanted to go into visual arts at all. Um, I mean, drawing or painting of any kind. So pretty early on, I picked acting. I wanted to get into acting. So I did a sort of performance arts uh, high school a bit. Um, and I, I tried that for a while. And I was really passionate. I wanted to be like the next Robert De Niro or Willem Dafoe or wherever my heroes were. Um, so how involved with that were, were you? Like, were you, did you do it in, in gymnasiate? Which is yeah, like, um... I did, and then after that, I uh, actually 
I toured with small theater groups and all that sort of stuff and uh, yeah performed all around the, the place basically um, but it was never I was never good enough to make it and I think I I realized that if I'm going to make it as an actor in Sweden you have to go to the government founded uh, acting school and all that sort of stuff otherwise you're sort of uh, not you've got to be a struggling artist and it was one thing I never wanted to be was a struggling artist uh, if anything I want to be an artist I want to work with creative stuff but I wanted to make money as well so for me the odd thing was I think I realized in my early 20s that the acting thing is probably not going to take me anywhere um, and I wasn't that passionate about the craft of acting or anything um, so oddly enough I, I have an uncle and he's one of the guys who owns house two doors down here and he owned an ad agency um, so I was actually studying business at business school for some reason I don't know why I chose that uh, it was just one of those things that I had. I'd worked as a ski instructor in Austria for a while, and um, I'd done a, a bunch of things, and then um, came home and was like, oh, maybe it's time to go to school to do something. Uh, and I had these options. Uh, one was to get into architecture school. The other one was business school, and I was just um, at a place where I had no idea. So for me, going to architecture school for five years if I, well, I didn't know what I was, uh, if I wanted to be that two weeks from then, so I figured, just pick something that's sort of, well, yeah, you can just do it and then decide as you go. Uh, so I went to business school for, yeah, almost the whole period, so three and a half years. Um, and then I was pretty close to graduating, and then I realized this is not, this is going to take me down to be like a marketing assistant somewhere in a marketing department. And that freaked me out, to be honest. So I, I, uh, uh, talked to my uh, uncle um, and then decided that I was going to be a copywriter in advertising uh, which was now in hindsight I, I can see that as a a very a thing in the middle of, uh, from what my parents did my dad the writer and my mom the visual sort of side and advertising works with all these things and uh, I've always been an idea generator more than anything as well so for me it was like okay this is this is what I'm good at uh, and um so I just uh, decided that I was going to get into advertising, and then I'm very persistent. So I, I basically talked my way into an ad agency, uh, did an internship there, and then uh, came back to Gothenburg and um, applied for a job uh, and got it. So uh, for me, uh, if any, I've always managed to sort of, this is what I want to do, and then I find a way to make it happen, basically. Uh, so people go, oh, how did you get into advertising? I was like, oh, I talked to people, and I made my way in is to figure out figure out figure it out as you as you go along uh, but i don't have any formal education doing anything so before before you uh went down that path and kind of started that career you said uh, you're a ski instructor like how was that just like a summer gig how old were you when you were doing that um uh, i was uh 19 20 um uh and it yeah, so I was uh, working in a place called Bargerstein in, in Austria and uh, Salbach in Austria. Uh, so that was for a couple of seasons. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, now I know as well, it's, I just wanted to pick something that was being, I've always enjoyed being on stage and center of attention and that sort of stuff. And that is just being a ski, ski instructor and a travel guide uh, like I was, is exactly that. It's just standing in front of a group of people and having people admire you for doing something and that, in that case, it was just skiing. In other cases, it was acting. And um, and later down, yeah, it's always been enjoying sort of some sort of limelight for something I'm good at. I still want to do something I'm good at. 
and then have people like me for that. Uh, and that's something that I talk about in my workshops a bit. I, I think that it's not a uh, an admirable trait. It's actually it's like it's being a bit needy when it comes to people telling me I'm good at what I do. Uh, but I've also accepted that as part of who I am. So it's if I would. I would lie if I didn't say that it's sort of shaped decisions I've made and all that sort of stuff. So it is. Some people are happy about just creating um, things for themselves. I've always liked to create something and show it to others. And and uh, yeah, and it's unfortunately an un- unsatiable beast. It doesn't matter how many people like you or how many likes or followers you have. It's just you just have to feed the beast. You're you're like your own beast. You mean? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, people think, oh, I'm going to be happy when I have 20,000 followers or 41,000 Instagram followers. No, it just keeps, it needs, and it's it's just some people have that need. And I think, um, luckily, I don't create from there. It's not like I adapt my, what I do for an audience. Um, I do what I like to do, and I rarely uh, adapt to anyone else's views on what I should do. at the same time, though, um, of course, I like when people like what I do. Uh, but it's not like I, I look at what people want and I do that. It's the other way around. I've been lucky that the decisions I've made, people seem to like that. And then I just keep on trucking, basically. So, yeah. So, do you think you predict or react to to kind of a feeling? Oh, I shouldn't say too much. This is part of my presentation. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> way up north. Uh, it's a, ba- a bad question. Skip it. Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> It's interesting. I believe that there are three. Oh, this is where I have to just cut this out of my presentation. Jonas, think, nobody, nobody listens to the podcast. <laughs> Good. Uh, well, I believe there are three kinds of people when it comes to life and business and stuff. And it's either people who, and this is not. It's not like I've come up with it. It's people who, people who act, people who react, and then there are the rest who don't do fucking anything. Sorry. Uh, it's and it's good to talk about the uh, the innovators. And the people, the adapt early adopters, and that sort of stuff. And but the problem is that no one talks about the mass who do absolutely nothing. Like the people who listen to this podcast and sit and nod and go, "Yeah," and then turn their computer off and have a sausage, and that's it. They don't do anything with what they've been fed. Um, and I'm not saying because the thing is, I can laugh about it because I'm often one of those people. I sit and read something inspirational and go, "Yeah, that's amazing." Tomorrow I will go and change something in my business or whatever, and then we don't do it. Or most people go to workshops, pay me $1,000 for a day, and I blow their socks off, they cry, and then go home and do nothing. They do nothing about... And I think the problem we have with the times we are in is that there's so much content. Like, everything is, like, all the time. There's, like, internet, and you can go and... There's everything all the time, podcasts, books... Instagram, it's just oh, it's just too much. It's like no one's hungry anymore because we're fed stuff all the time, and and I think that we need to get hungrier. So it's like uh, somebody needs to go to a workshop, and go and go back and change their whole life because of it. And I don't think anyone does anymore. It's sort of like it's just uh, just burping content, and people are just like don't know what to do with it. That's a bit of a rant, but that's that's what I feel. Yeah. So, okay, I'll try and like segue what you just said there back into kind of like uh, your upbringing a little bit. Do you th- like you did military training, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Do you think that made you a decisive person? Um, and and I ask that because I think decisiveness is probably 
one of the best traits an entrepreneur can have. And it seems yeah. to me like you're very decisive. And I'm wondering if your military um, training, which you have to do in Sweden, had anything to, to had any effect on that? I don't know if my what I've done has affected things after or I already had it. So I said, did I get into my my military service because of uh, being decisive, or has that has that made me decisive? I, I I struggle with sort of picking what came first, uh, the chicken or the egg or whatever. Um, and the same thing with my advertising people, advertising career. I did almost ten years and had a very very successful advertising career. People go, oh, you, that must be so important for you now and I go I don't know uh, I've always been maybe I was I, I'm like this and that that took me into advertising it's like it's not like I changed fundamentally because of anything I've done I think I would have I've just that's the track and I ended up on that because of who I am and I think that fundamentally I'm the same person I, today that I was when I was 17 basically I've always had a very high uh, confidence in that I could do anything um not in any way thinking I'm better than anyone else, but if you tell me that I can't do anything, I will just laugh and and try and prove you wrong. Um, so yes, I'm decisive, and I think that, but I'm also extremely confident that I and you and everyone could do whatever they choose to do. So like I want to, people ask me, oh, I want to shoot destination weddings. Good. What have you done for that to happen? Nothing. <laughs> That's okay. I want to shoot weddings in America. Okay, what needs to happen for that? Well, I guess my, my wedding photography needs to be seen in America. Okay, good. How do we make that happen? For me, it's like it's breaking it down to simple uh, problem solving. It's like, okay, here's the problem. What do we need to do to solve that problem? Okay, this needs to happen. And it's, it's a lot of people don't, they just sit and wait. For, like, it's going to happen. It's like someone's going to feed it to you. No, you have to go out and get it yourself. And, and the people who make it are the people who go out and get it. And it's either the people who act, sometimes for those people, the people who react are equally savvy. They look at what someone else is doing well and go, that's pretty clever, I'm going to react to that. But then there's the rest who see the act, the people who act and the people who react, and they just go, yeah, and do nothing. And I find that you need to be one of the first two. It doesn't matter who it is, but either act, create something completely new, or look at someone else who does and go, hmm, that's clever, I'm going to do that with a twist. But don't be the other, the mass that's it and do nothing. So it sounds like the impression I get from you is that um, big goals come easily for you. And I think, in my opinion, like uh, the hardest part about getting to where you want to be isn't necessarily the steps to get there, but it's coming up with that big goal in the first place. Do mm. you do you feel like you're a goal-oriented person? Well, it's interesting because um, me getting into wedding photography in the first place was actually... Uh, getting away from my sh me chasing success. I've been chasing success in advertising for almost 10 years and I achieved all of it, but I also got burned out, completely burned out by it. So me getting into wedding photography in 2008, 2007, 2008 was, was actually me trying to get away from all that and just do something that made me fundamentally happy. So I wanted to do something, and I knew it was photography because that made that's always made me happy. And then I also know deep inside that I want to do something for people to make them happy. That's always been my need when I was an actor as well. So like I, I loved to make people smile or people react and all that. So it's been a need to get people to react positively to what I do. Um, so I got in, 
with the, <laughs> it's going to sound bad, with the right intention. I got in with that as a goal. I had no lofty sort of, let's go out and win some awards, or let's go and shoot all around the world. That was never in the, in the sort of the initial plan. Um, but this, what happened was that I, I got so much attention straight away. Um, and I, mean, I went from my first wedding and then everything literally, not literally, but it exploded in my face. And then all of a sudden I'm on planes flying around the country to begin with. And then, and then I'm flying internationally. And then I guess what I do is I shift the goals. I move the goalposts all the time. Um, but it was never initially a plan to t take over any sort of wedding photography world or whatever it is, uh, or shoot the way I am or, and do all these high profile things. So it was literally, I want to make people happy because that makes me happy. But then I'm super competitive, super ambitious. And if I can move, move my goalposts, or uh, I will do that. Uh, so it's always, I, I, I try to be as good as I could be, basically. So it sounds to me like, like there's a lot of self-fulfillment, feeding the beast that goes on in your world, which is awesome. Um, that didn't happen in the ad world for you? Is that what you're saying? No, it did. Uh, but it's just um, part, there was two things with advertising. Partly it's you're creating uh, for someone else. Um, you're, you're, a, you're creating stuff that you have it's a collaborative process, and uh, a lot of the time, the people you collaborate uh, with uh, don't share your opinions. You're selling um, stuff to people, creative ideas to people who don't really appreciate what it is you're selling. Uh, and you work with committees and people, and you do focus groups. and uh, uh, So you have very little creative control. So in the end, being telling the stories that I want to tell and and, and working with people face to face, uh, where you can say, this is what we're doing, we're doing it together. That's not advertising, uh, because an advertising campaign can be, it could be uh, hundreds or millions of dollars for a company in a year, so no, no way they're gonna let the random Swede do this funny thing he wants to do. That's gonna be broken down into his particles, and, and I just got fed up with that. So I got a lot of big wins. I won awards and um, made a lot of money, but it's a, such a frustrating process. So it's like if you get one good win a year or two, then you're happy. The rest of the time is spending meetings with people who don't give a shit about uh, what it is you're actually creating together. Uh, what's silver, silver fiskin? Um, I know what it is. And Swedes probably know what it is, but maybe you could describe it. Yeah, long story. Uh, when I moved to Australia, um, I was thrown into this uh, really uh, uh, interesting lifestyle in advertising. Uh, a lot of partying and hanging out with weird people. Um, and coming from Sweden to Sydney, which is one of the most sort of uh, debaucherous cities in the world, it was really interesting for me. So uh, I started a blog, and this was in 2005, 2004. And, um, and the idea was to write about this uh, debaucherous lifestyle in advertising that I had but very quickly I sat down and started writing and all these other things came out it's like I, um, I'm a very um, the way I write and the way I shoot is very reactive uh, I don't go in with any intentions so I literally sat down put my hands to the keyboard and started writing and all these stories came out about my father and uh, everything basically it was like a first diary I've ever had. I've never had a, kept a diary in my life and it just all of it came out and very quickly people found the blog um, 
and within a year it was voted the most popular blog in Sweden um, and it had about 175,000 people following it. Um, How is that measured, the most popular blog in Sweden? They had these uh, basically blog awards uh, and it was uh, voted by popular vote, uh, the best blog in Sweden. So uh, this was back in 2006. Um, today I wouldn't stand a chance, but I was one of the uh, early adopters. Uh, I did it uh, early on and became sort of a, a big name then. Um, but then I, I sort of transitioned that into my wedding photography business and uh, I gave up my uh, personal blog in about 2008, I think. Uh, but I still get people writing me about it and still um, book uh, weddings uh, with Swedish people who is like, oh, because of that. So it's interesting. So my Swedish sucks. Um, but I've, I, I do remember kind of poking around the Silverfish yep. blog a little <laughs> bit. And it sounds like it was a pretty big party scene in the ad world that you were, oh, yeah. that you were in. Like, how involved did you get in that? Did the, did the party scene inspire you to create more things? The hippie, maybe it's the hip, maybe it comes back to the hippie thing. No, I think uh, to get really honest about it, I think I left when I left Sweden. I uh, left a, uh, a a relationship uh, behind. Uh, I broke up with my girlfriend at the time, or fiance, to be honest. Uh, and I landed in Sydney, and I was single for the first time in uh, ten years, almost. Uh, I'd been in been what's called a serial monogamist, I think. Uh, so I la <laughs> landed in Sydney, was single. And I met up with this uh, good friend of mine uh, who was also my art director. Um, and we just needed that in our lives. So we went out and party together. So I was highly involved in, in everything party-wise. And uh, coming from Sweden, it's like I have never touched a drug in my life. And uh, there you are, in, after 40 minutes after landing, and someone is shoving cocaine in your face. And I was like, oh, I don't know what this is. But uh, I did partake. And... Uh, but if it made me more creative, no, I can say it didn't. It's like a, a wormhole of, uh, because that's what you do. You do you do drugs or you drink, but you can't do both at the same time. That's just, it's not going to take you anywhere. It's not like the good old hippies that did uh, acid and stuff went out and created things on that. It's literally just uh, shoving stuff down your throat or smoking or drinking. Well, that's not going to make you a more creative person, I think. Uh, but I, I needed to go off the rails for a while and it was actually... The people I met then and what I learned about myself has been highly sort of um, helpful now, I think. But uh, it's not like it, the actual uh, <laughs> drug taking or partying did any good for my work ethic or anything like that. It's, uh, so this is kind of interesting to me because um, like I live in Sweden now and I've been there off and on for quite a while. And I've never seen drugs once, like not even marijuana. So I think there's like, you know, there's the shock value for a Swede maybe hearing these stories yeah. so i'm curious with your blog that grew into the biggest one in sweden was it the the shock value of the stories you were sharing or was it how you were sharing the stories like you're writing it's not for me to say but i i thought that that was what i was going to write about but i it turns out that what people fell in love with was more uh the emotional stories i shared about other things uh, it wasn't so much the, the party scene that that actually um got any um any mileage at all uh, that I thought that would be what people wanted to hear but it turns out it was more sharing emotional things uh, that's what people connected with and oddly enough I, I, I think that I thought the, the funny the cool the party stuff would was what people would react to but it turns out that writing about being lonely or in a new country and 
never having much uh, relationships with my father, that's the stuff that people connected with. And, and in the end, I, I realized that the more I can connect emotionally with people, uh, the better it is. And I, I basically just took that with me when I then started my photography business. Uh, I don't think the people want to hear about people partying and doing drugs. It's just like you get sick of that. It's like that loud mouth in the corner. Just, yeah, okay, do whatever you want to do. I don't want to hear about it. Uh, so in the end, I... And then I had my son in the middle of that as well. My, Noah was born uh, uh, about a year and a half after I started the blog. So everything transitioned from being uh, this uh, crazy party guy, single, to being a, being a dad, basically. So uh, it's not like it's going to be cool writing about snorting cocaine uh, off a conference room table when you have a six-week-old baby at home. Yeah, of course. And you mentioned there like your relationship with your father was not close. And I did sort of pick that up in mm. the Swedish blog, but I don't know. I don't speak Swedish very well. So, like, what wasn't ideal about your relationship with him? Very simply, he was just uh, older. He was 49 when I was born, so he was almost 60 when I was 10, and then uh, we found out that he had cancer. Uh, so, in many ways, it was um, just being an older generation. He wasn't very good at saying, I love you to me and my brother and all that, but he was always there. He was always at home, and uh, was also around, but he was never one to sort of push or inspire or, or tell us uh, that we were amazing in any way. So I think my need to be seen comes partly from that, I think. Uh, on the other hand, my mom um, was very supportive and very loving and all that. So I've had a bit of yin and yang growing up, I think. And uh, um, so um, it is who I am, and uh, I have no regrets, really. Um, uh, I've just learned to accept that I have have sort of a bit of that beast inside me that needs to be, um, yeah, fed now and then. Okay, fair fair play. So before you um, really got going in wedding photography, which I guess would have been two thousand eight, um, what was the what was your best story or your favorite story that you ever told before that? Oh wow, um, don't know to be honest. I uh, yeah, I've, I've always loved stories and I, I knew that the reason that I decided to go into wedding photography was that I looked I looked at wedding photography and I felt like the stories were so shithouse that uh, th this can't go on and I was looking at the, the low budget the really cheesy stuff in Australia and I looked at why on earth are people doing these peeking out behind trees and, and doing things that and I, I was like I asked my friends who just got married and I was like why on earth are you why are you standing there doing these things? And they were like, what do you mean, dude? It's wedding photography. And I go, clearly someone else must be doing, because I go to weddings all the time and have an amazing time. Why isn't anyone doing that? And they were like, well, do it then. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And then that's basically how it started. It was like, uh, so for me, it was more real stories uh, with real emotion. And then I started going to weddings and shooting that. And uh, Well, to go back to, go back to that question, like, I'm curious about the pre-wedding uh, mm. Jonas Persson and the story time because you you say you're you are a storyteller and you've said it many times and that's that is uh, what I associate you with more than a photographer let's say so before you were Jonas the photographer like yep. what sort of stories were you sharing because on your blog it sounds it was like it was a diary and yep. in advertising it sounds like you're selling other people's shit so what what were you? What stories were you actually creating? 
Yeah, well, interesting question. I, I think that it's taken me, I've always, uh, and I've learned that what I'm after now, it's a, what, what are you looking for in wedding photography? I've always been in love with telling an emotional story. So for me, I want to, people to react uh, emotionally to what I'm presenting to them. Um, and for me, that has always been the case. So even when I was in advertising and selling um, whatever I was selling, beer, I needed people to react emotionally to what I was presenting to them. And I think that that has always been the case. Even when I was in, uh, when I did acting, um, I would tell stories, craft stories, tell them in a way to make people react. Um, and if, if there was no emotional reaction, then the story is pointless. Then I'm just standing there wasting someone else's time. So for me, the type of story that I tell and always have told is an emotional story. If it's not that, then I don't want to tell it. Then I, I, I simply don't tell it. Um, and it's affected the type of stories I look for, the type of stories that I tell, um, and the type of life I live, I guess, in many ways. But it's always been, that's always been the common theme, is that I want to tell an emotional story, uh, and I want to live an emotional, passionate story. And for me, that's sort of been my um, everything. Um, so um, emotion and passion, whatever you want to call it, if, if, if it has those ingredients, I'm there. If it doesn't, I, I check out pretty quickly. Do you remember the first time that you realized that emotional storytelling was for you? Like, do you have a specific story that you created that you were like, you, you saw the reaction that you liked, you fed the beast a bit, and you realized that that's what you wanted to continue doing? I don't have a specific moment, but if you would ask my mother, she said, you've been like that since you were born. Basically, you would look at an audience and then do something, and then once you got the reaction you wanted, you'd keep repeating that over and over again, which means that I would, at Christmas parties, tell a joke, and if no one laughed, I'd tell another joke, and then once people laughed or reacted emotionally to that, I would keep telling that same joke over and over again until it was just annoying. Um, so for me, I've, I've apparently always been like that. Um, but doing what I do now, um, I read a, a really interesting book uh, recently. I'm still reading it, actually. Uh, it's called Talk, Talk Like Ted, I think it is. Um, and it's about all these, breaking down all these TED Talks. Um, and one thing, he, one of the speakers talk about is... Um, find out what you're passionate about, um, ask yourself that question, or he asks other people that question. Uh, and a lot of people will say, I'm passionate about whatever it is. Um, but then he also says, then once you've done that, ask yourself what makes your heart sing about what you do. What is it about what you do that makes your heart sing? It's taking it even one step further. And I asked myself those questions only, this is like literally two months ago. And I realized that it wasn't wedding for, there wasn't, creating these wedding stories that I was passionate about. I realized what makes my heart sing is to tell these emotional stories. It's actually, I wouldn't say it's led me away from wedding photography, but it's made me realize that what I'm passionate about is telling emotional stories. And it's almost separated me from the actual wedding photography thing that I do because that is what I'm passionate about. And wedding photography is just a vessel or just a vehicle to do that, I think. Uh, so sounds like you're a bit of a, a chameleon in a way with your audiences. Do you feel like like and what I mean by that is you you adapt to the audience when you were a kid telling the jokes uh, with the ads 
when you were doing that with the wedding photography now. So you, did, do you feel like you kind of, um, you've moved and shifted your career and the direction of your life based on where you think you're going to get a, a largest audience, the one that you can have <laughs> the most emotional connection with? No, I, I think they may sound like that, but the, the weird thing is that I've just, I've done what uh, makes sense to me. Um, and then I can post-rationalize and go back and look at. So when I talk about my blog, I wasn't writing that in a specific way to get an emotional reaction. But I, I noticed this is me looking back and going, okay, this is what people reacted to. Um, so but when I do something, I just do it purely based on gut feeling. But I'm also quite good at going back and looking, okay, this worked, this didn't, um, and all that. But people ask me, why do you shoot the way you do? I'm like, I don't know. I show up with my cameras. That's all I know. I, I'm not like a, it's, I'm going in with a planned sort of approach in any way. Um, but I'm also just who I am, just analyzing, breaking down things all the time. And uh, um, so as much as I react and I base myself on heart and gut feeling, I'm also an analytical animal that sort of see patterns and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's hard hard to answer. It's just who I am. Uh, partly being Swedish and analyzing, and partly being very sort of uh, filled with heart and all that. So it's it's I can't separate the two. Yeah, if that makes sense. So when you started in 2008, like you had a massive audience um, from mm. the Silverfish days. Um, do you think that had any effect on your quick growth? Yeah, totally. Uh, but um, it's hard to. It did. It, it helped immensely. I mean, uh, I have a which you probably know, and you guys have been good at it as well. I had a, I had SEO going through the roof. I mean, I literally went from having shot nothing to be the first page on Google for one of the most difficult wedding markets in the world, which is Brisbane. Uh, I think the only other harder wedding market to break into SEO-wise is New York wedding photographer is high up there, then Brisbane wedding photographer. And I was the first name after like 10 days or something like that. So of course that helped immensely booking the way I did my first year. But but also I shot my first wedding and and I was on these forums and stuff and people reacted to my work other photographers reacted to it very quickly. As it was, yes, I had a, a push with the audience, but I also had a lot of uh, other photographers uh, being almost shocked at uh, what I did that quickly. So, um, timing uh, and doing something was right at the right time. Uh, mixing that with a bit of luck and a bit of uh, a need for something new, I think. Uh, I don't think I could have done it here in Sweden, for instance. If I would have tried to do what I do, what I started doing in 2008 here now, or then, nothing would have happened. No, people thought you were crazy to do that. So uh, there was just a need for it in, in that part of the world, I think. And, um, and luckily, Australia is a, is a great wedding market. So I, I, had a, I could do it there. And uh, I mean, I shot 100 weddings in my first two years. So yeah. So <clears throat> what about like stepping away from the ad world? Was that a pretty pretty easy thing to do? Because you had success with Canes, I think it was. Uh, was that the name of the award that you won? Uh, the Cannes Grand Prix, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you won. A, you won. You know, the Stanley Cup of the ad world. Like, and just stepping away from that, like, mm. what was that feeling like? Do you think that added to like 
I don't know, the emotional connection your audience already had with you to see that transition away. And then all of a sudden you're creating weddings. So that's a pretty emotional thing in itself. So what was that transition like? Well, it was, uh, I actually got fired from advertising. So that's what happened. Uh, I could have got a, I got fired from a job, uh, which I had been headhunted to, um, for no other reason than complete backstabbing uh, by uh, someone that I don't want to mention. Um, while I was at the peak of what I could do creatively, and I realized that this is not a sustainable career. I can't do what I do. I'm doing my best work ever. I still get fired. Uh, and I realized I can go out tomorrow and get a job at another agency. I had that much sort of um, going for me. And I had an agent. And she said, I can have you a job tomorrow making just as much money as you did today. But I was actually walking home from work. And I was like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. It's just complete bullshit. I don't want to work in an industry that's so full of shit, basically, wading through just this political crap all the time. And um, so I went home and um, sat down and said, I'm not going back to advertising. I'm just fed up with it. I don't want any of that crap anymore. Um, and I took, uh, luckily I was making enough money in advertising so I could afford to take a few months off. So I basically took a few months off and uh, was a stay-at-home dad with my son. Um, and then um, made my mind up during that time, basically. So, yeah. What did what was your impression of the industry, the wedding photography industry, when you were an ad guy? Did you have any impression at all? Did it even cross your mind what goes on in the industry? No, not at all. I mean, it was like I say, like I was very highly regarded, sort of in advertising, and for wedding photographers, it's the ass end of photography. It's like that's what the hacks did, who couldn't become a commercial photographer. It's like that's. That's the stay-at-home moms, and the, and it was just that's what people thought about it, and and wedding photography was if you can't do if you're not good enough to do anything else, do wedding photography basically. Um, that's how it looked to me from the outside, but that's also the what I found so intriguing was that um, there's an opportunity there to do something uh, more real, um, and oddly enough, now I know that the people who actually do the beautiful work or the stay-at-home moms and all those sort of people and not the you can't go into wedding photography with some sort of I'm going to go in here and make a commercial decision or whatever people do that but you go into wedding photography for the right reasons you have to if you don't do that then become a stockbroker instead I mean you can't be a I made a shit ton of money in advertising it was never a business decision to do wedding photography for me it was just like it's cheesy or it's super high end and people stand on staircases looking like lampshades. Like, why isn't someone doing it somewhere in the middle for normal people? Um, but then my, I mean, my business brain kicked in as well. I mean, I came from making a lot of money in advertising and then I looked at my new choice of was wedding photography. So I basically said to myself, okay, I'm going to give this a year and a half or so. Um, but I also have two kids to support. Uh, so I... I made business decisions early on that has worked really well for me, um, and I, I gave myself sort of a year and a half to m make it financially in wedding photography. Uh, so, what was what was one of the first business decisions you made when you started getting into weddings that attributed to most of your success later on? Do you think? Um, sad as it sounds, I think um, I made a decision not to start uh, on the bottom. Uh, I never, I didn't want to do any budget weddings. Um, I just know consumer behavior too well, and 
I knew that the people who just want a photographer, they're not going to let me be creative the way I wanted, needed to be because what I was wanting to offer at the time was too different from the norm. So if you go in, I just want a photographer for my wedding. I have $400 and I go in and that wouldn't let me do what I, what I wanted to do. Um, and I also knew that so I want to stay away from the budget weddings and I want to stay away from the high, super high end because people with too much money, they're um, also pretty difficult to work with. Let's not call people stuff here. But um, So I basically positioned myself um, above the low budget stuff and um, to shoot what I call normal people. But we talk about middle class, probably academics. It's not... Not lawyers and doctors. I do shoot those, uh, but it, it could be anything from a accountant to yeah. Well, I'm I'm curious though. Like, how did you actually do that? Uh, and what I mean is like, it's easy to, to say, and it makes sense in my head to hear that. But mm. if you photograph your your first wedding, and I think it was those people standing in a pool. Yeah. Well, that's number so, three. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, like I'm thinking like those people in the very beginning. Mm weren't at the top end of the budget spectrum no, no. let's yeah. say so did you just do those weddings which may be paid nothing i have no idea it doesn't matter but did you do those weddings and think to yourself okay like that's my perfect client and i think that they're probably going to spend in the higher end of the budget scale so i'll just show that or like what did you actually do to get those that target client okay so uh, yeah let's go back but uh <laughs> <laughs> pump the pump the brakes pump the yeah brakes. uh what i did and the decision I made, uh, and now I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, but I decided just to show the type of work that I wanted to shoot. Um, so I decided to, let's take a job on the side. So I had a job on the side, and I said, okay, I'm going to shoot these weddings. But if it's not exactly the type of client I want to work with or the type of wedding I want to do, I'm not going to show it. Um, a lot of people say, oh, I, need to sh I show all my weddings because I need to get more clients, which I respect. But I said early on, like, if I could get three weddings in the first six months that look the way I want them to look and that the type of uh, people I want to shoot for or whatever, then I'm just going to show those um, because I have the other job on the side that I can rely on. I got lucky, and so basically uh, that was the decision I made. But out of the first ten weddings I shot, I, I, could, I showed maybe six or seven of those. Um, so I got lucky but that was the decision I made, was not to show the type of work that I didn't want to do. Uh, and that's something I've kept up. I, 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 I don't show the type of work that, uh, if it's not what I want to do, if the people don't respond to the type of stuff that I want to do, uh, then I don't show it. It's basically that, because I know now more than anything that what you show is what you sell. Um, yeah, that's what it is. And uh, I made that decision from day one. I'd imagine now... Um, your ideal clients are are hiring you at a higher frequency now than they were in the beginning. In the beginning, I'd imagine you said it was six out of ten were ideal. Let's say so. Those situations were in the beginning in two thousand eight or two thousand nine. You were being hired by people who maybe weren't a perfect fit. Like, mm. how, what was your reaction on on the day when you're photographing the wedding? Were you like, I'm not going to show this, so my my level of interest declined. Or like, what, what, what was your reaction when you felt on the day of a wedding in the beginning that this is not a fit for me? So now it's a job. Um, I had a, a couple of early wake-up calls. Um, I shot, so in my first six months, um, I shot two weddings overseas, I think. I uh, and then I came back and I had weddings 
booked. Um, and I, I do this run sheet uh, where it says what I'm going to shoot today and what suburb I'm in, what the rental car company is or whatever. Um, and in the morning, I was coming back from having shot overseas. Uh, I looked at my own run sheet and it said that uh, the bride and groom is going to get picked up in a pink Hummer. And I knew it was in a suburb that was sort of a... Um, I, I judged them just based on the decisions they made. And I was driving there in my car and I told myself... Uh, Oh, it's just going to be like a bread and butter day. Go in and do your job, and then you're going to shoot your type of weddings next week or whatever. And then I showed up, and I knocked on the door. Um, it's this guy opened. It was the best man. And he said, um, Jacob is going to be with you soon. He's just uh, talking to his dad. And I'll let you in. And he let me into the house. And then they opened the door, and in the middle of the room was this stretcher or a hospital bed. And... The groom was talking to his father who had a stroke. He hadn't had a stroke then, but he obviously had a stroke. And he was in the middle of the floor there. And then the best man leaned in and said to me, um, I don't know if you know, but uh, Jacob and Courtney are both going to medical school. And uh, um, and every day, um, at the end of the day, they put a coin in a jar. And the jar says, it's stone jar. And they do that to be able to afford your rates. And I just said to the best man, sorry, I have to step outside for a second. And then I went outside and I literally slapped myself and I said, don't ever fucking go in with an attitude like that ever again. This is someone's wedding. And if you go in with that attitude, you're going to do a shit job for people who deserve your best effort. Um, and I, I remind myself that even when there's people I don't like, I've been treated badly by people uh, in different situations. But um, I don't know what reasons they have to treat, for treating me badly. I just need to go in with... Uh, as much of a Buddhist uh, approach as I can and just love everyone um, as much as I can. Um, I've had times when I wanted to step away, but I've always like, go in and, and love them. And if you can't do that, then you shouldn't be in this job to begin with. So I can't treat it like a bread about a day. Uh, and if I do that, I will do a really bad job. So uh, for me, I've had a couple of reminders about that. So I never, I never judge a situation or a, a destination anymore. Um, because they will always surprise you. I've had ama amazing weddings in scout halls uh, in suburbs I was afraid to travel to. And I've had really awful weddings in on a beach in Mexico. So you never know. I just treat people nicely and something good will ha happen, hopefully. That's a good story. You're a good storyteller, Jonas. <laughs> so um, throughout the years um, that like Jakob and I have been following you, um, well, since we started, really, you've been... Um, pretty vocal within the industry the mason jar manifesto like you, you've been pretty vocal and involved uh, with all things within the wedding industry uh, why did you have such a level a high level of care straight away for what goes on within the industry well I, I pick something um, I'm passionate about what I do if I'm not pa passionate I'm nothing I'm, I'm literally if I lose passion for what I do I will just do a poor job and uh, for me I'm super passionate about the industry I'm in. Uh, uh, and for me, I, I've seen so many... I mean, we all see trends and uh, things, and uh, that if they rub me the wrong way, I'll just speak up about it. And I think uh, I also learned pretty quickly that uh, if, I, if I have a platform, if I have a chance to influence where the where we're going with this, uh, then I'm going to use it. I'm going to take that chance and um, and just say what I think about uh, what's wrong and what's if it's something I don't enjoy, then I'll talk about it. And uh, 
that's what I why I got into doing workshops and stuff later. It wasn't as much a business decision as it was. Well, I, if I can influence some people, I'm going to take that opportunity and do it. So yeah. So with like destination weddings, that's that's primarily your focus, and it involves you being away from your kids a lot. Yeah. So I mean, they're there with you right now in Gotland, like, mm-hmm. but most of the time you're away from your kids. Yeah. How is that for you? That's pretty shit. So I've uh, I've just made a move to uh, base myself um, in an area where I can shoot more locally. Um, the ironic thing about becoming really well known for destination type work is that I struggle with booking local work, and I'm sure you have the same problem in Sweden. It's like I local people think that I'm. Not too snobby, but I think that I don't want to shoot locally anymore. Like uh, uh, people see elephants on uh, in Africa, and they go, "Oh, he wouldn't shoot our wedding in our backyard." And like, I'd love to shoot in your backyard, but I don't even get the question anymore. So, I've actually moved to an area in Australia now where there's a very uh, vibrant wedding market, um, so I can basically work at home. Um, so, uh, yeah, that is. Uh, but still, I mean. Over half of the weddings I do are destination weddings, definitely. And the rest are interstate. I think I have about five local weddings every year. But I'm changing that gradually. So it's already looking much better for next year. So travel less is the goal. Do you feel like um, the destination wedding photographer uh, path is a, a facade of sorts that's not sustainable? Yeah, totally. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the biggest bubble of them all. So people... People come to my workshops, or people come to listen to me, or and they're like, everyone thinks you have to be a destination wedding photographer. Those are the people we celebrate today. Like, whoever shoots the most weddings internationally are the most successful ones. But no one is talking about the shit end of that. It's sitting in a motel somewhere on a Friday night. All your other friends are back home. Your family's back home, um, and it's it's only cool so many times. I mean. Uh, you're literally away from the people that you care about for most of of the time. Um, is that a, is that success? Um, I don't think it is, and it's just, it's a single man's game. I think uh, you would know that as well. It's like it's fine for a while, and then um, I don't, literally don't want to do it anymore. It's like how seductive does the place need to be for me to go there? It's like Santiago is just going to be another city. Yes, I've never been to Chile, but I'm going to sit in a hotel room on a Friday night. It's not that great. So for me. Uh, it was great uh, and has been great, but uh, if people think that that is the definition of success in wedding photography, then I need, they need to start rebooting because it's, it really isn't. Success is to be happy with the people you have around you um, and uh, find a way to do that. Find a way to be able to shoot, um, have a good balance of weddings at home and maybe travel a few times every year and then spend time with people you love. That's what I think people should be looking for and someone should be teaching that in a workshop not how to book more weddings in Panama or Cuba or whatever we're part of the problem yes we are totally so do you think that like it it doesn't feel to me like uh, what goes on in the industry has much effect on what you do sounds like you blaze your own trail and, and do your own thing but what are you seeing now in the industry as a trend that's going to kind of like swallow itself whole. Do you think it's the destination wedding photographer gig, or like what are what's a trend you're seeing now that that is going to sort of kind of have a self implosion for a photographer who chooses to go down that road? Well, it's hard to say. I think uh, I mean it's, it's obviously 
another. <laughs> it's obviously very saturated, and I think when I started, I didn't see the saturation that much. But um, and I was uh, pretty. I was one of the early adopters to do the type of wedding photography I do. Uh, now there are a lot of people doing that, and and the, the a few, <laughs> a few, and the prices are going down at a rate that it's just shocking. You kind of go like half. You can't charge half of what I do uh, compared to three years ago. Well, I can, but it, I'm, I'm, it's just, you have people who are amazing who charge way less than half of what I charge. And I go like, these are you're some of the top names in the world, and you charge peanuts. And so that's obviously it's going to self-destruct in that way because what's going to happen is that the really talented artists are going to go away from wedding photography again because it's like it's going to be it's just going to be a budget hole again. It's just like if you get a thousand bucks for a wedding, that's, and you get something really good, it's going to mean that the really good ones are not going to do wedding photography. That's what's going to happen, um, I think. Um, the other thing, uh, it's hard to say creatively what's going to happen because I don't look at wedding photography at all. I, I literally do not know what anyone else is doing. Um, even my friends, oh, have you seen that wedding? I'm like, no, sorry, I don't. I don't want to see your wedding. I don't want to look at what Fair does and go, shit, he's doing it better than I do. I made the mistake of looking at Gabe McClintock's Iceland thing and like, fuck me. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to know what's going on. I don't want to know that my friends are doing better than I do. I don't want to see what you're, how you're editing or anything like that because uh, it's just, I've been down that track so many times. So now I'm like, I don't care. Like been down that track with when you used to follow wedding photographers? Yeah, well, yeah. my first six months, I, I looked at the people I uh, looked up to. Um, there were a few people that I thought was doing really cool things, and it could be anything from editing to what lenses they used and all that, but then I realized that uh, if I start copying what they do, I'm just going to be a, like a weaker version of them anyway, and I've talked a lot about uh, there's no point in me being like a inferior Sean Flanagan or... Eric Clausen's Swedish cousin or whatever. It's, it's pointless. It's, I'm just going to not be able to do what they do anyway. Um, so in the end, I just, in the end, it was just five months in, I was like, stop looking at it. It's not going to do you any good. So now, like, if I shoot something in a certain way, it's not because I've seen Fair do it or Gabe or whatever. It's because I'm literally clueless to what everyone else is doing. I, I go out, and it's actually made me a happier photographer because I, I see something that, and it makes me excited. And I don't have to worry about if someone else has done it before. I just go, wow, I love this. And I don't care if Gabe's shooting the same thing or Fair or Nirav or whatever. Um, it's, it's irrelevant. But to keep on going, I think that a problem I'm seeing is that everything is so accessible. Uh, everything is out there. Everyone can go and look at exactly what everyone else is doing. And they can look at your EXIF uh, data and all that. And no one has come up with something new anymore because it's all out there. I want to be a wedding photographer. Here's what everyone else is doing. Okay, that's easy then. I'm just going to copy these people. Um, and the real innovators have never had a chance to do that, to, to break the mold or to go out and do something first. You literally have to come up with a, your own approach. And, uh, and there is so much of uh, people copying other people today that that's going to yeah, self-implode. Well, on, on that note, like you're probably... It's. I think it, it's safe to say you're you're the most copied guy out there. And like, do you like? And what I mean is like the your your web design, for example, and and maybe your approach and what you did influence maybe more people than anyone else. It's tough to say. You can't quantify that. But I'm curious. Like, heavy lays the crown. Like, do you feel 
that weight on you at all like because you are so copied right and i'm not you know know, that's just a metaphor but like the heavyweights the crown thing but like do you feel any pressure with that with so many people copying your shit and trying to be you uh no i i had again uh, my first um couple of years I was reluctant to share what I did with people and all that sort of stuff but and then I was like no I'm just gonna do go the other way I'm gonna go I'm gonna go all common what do you call it it's a common license I'm just gonna share everything I do and then um, well, my approach with that was like if, if I give everything out then I need to innovate myself all the time um, so it's sort of both <laughs> both worked out and both did work out because I've just I guess influenced a lot of people to Go out and shoot in in a very simple way, I guess. But but also, I, I, it's made me kick myself uh, in the ass a bit because I, I I need to not I need to innovate myself a, a bit more, and I think I need to work harder, which is something I'm uh, I'm trying to do. Um, so it's it, but I don't really worry about anyone copying what I do um, if if that's even the case. Um, well, becoming over overly inspired by you, and next yeah. thing you know, their website is white with a gray sans serif font and a minimalist. You know, like that's what I mean. Um, I don't to be yeah, to answer your question. No, I don't worry about it. Uh, I can see that it's um, <laughs> becoming more difficult to charge what I want to charge. Uh, I got an email the other day that said, uh, "Hi, Nirav, we really love your work." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and then I got an email five minutes later and said, "Oh, sorry." Um, we knew we wasn't writing to Nirav, but we found your work through Nirav. So I mean, um, oh well, well, that's, maybe he's the next guy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, he's he's too short though to to even make it. But you know, and too kind. Yeah, too kind. Um, no, so I think that uh, it's just natural progression. I think that uh, I don't think I've I I think I'm a good early adopter. I'm, I'm not even sure I influence people uh, at all. And there are other. There are better innovators out there than I am, but I think, if anything, I've been good at. Um, I'm a good adopter, I think. Uh, and if I'm influencing people, um, it's hard for me to say. And um, um, and I don't worry about it, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> With the early adopter point, like yeah, it seems like you do do that well. And now that you've done a lot in this industry, um, there's not much left for you to do. I don't know. I follow your Instagram and I follow you on Twitter and things like that. And and if I'm just to read between the lines, I wouldn't say that you're bored with what you do. You're not. You love what you do, obviously. But it seems like you're looking to what's next. So what do you? What are some things that might pique your interest to adopt to next? Well, I want to keep doing what I do. But I, I noticed um, very early on, even in 2010, I did 65 weddings. Uh, and what that did more than anything was completely killed my creativity so even then I realized I'm gonna to have to scale it back a bit um, so now I'm at a point where I'm shooting maybe 25 20 25 weddings every year um, and I haven't raised my prices so I'm, I'm making less money doing shooting weddings but that's freed me up to do other things um, so basically uh, I'm not asking, I'm dodging your question uh, I, I want to tell keep telling stories but I want to do it in maybe other forms so whether that's filmmaking or even writing I will probably uh, try my hand at that uh, at some point but I don't want to give up what I do it's not like I'm moving on from what I do now um, but I see myself telling other types of stories in other type of formats uh, in the future um, and I think that's going to 
actually helped my wedding photography as well. I think that it's important to bring other stuff in to to what we do. I feel like I feel, like to jump in there. I feel like you've said that for a couple of years. Mm. Do you do you feel like you've procrastinated making the transition into something like video? Because you've said that a few times, and it seems to be an interest of yours. Uh, I think uh, that's correct, and I think uh, I've been good at seeing. Um, I mean, be good at moving on when I'm getting bored, but I've also can see that you you hold on to security for quite a while. And I was in advertising for maybe two years too long uh, because that was what made me a lot of money. I'm not saying I'm in wedding photography for too long, but the safety of doing what you're good at and people praising you for it is pretty seductive. So to do something completely new, not knowing if that, where that's going to go, yes, I'm, I'm maybe holding on to that a bit too much and not letting go of the railing uh, and all that. But at the same time, it wasn't like when I left advertising, I was fed up with it. I still enjoy what I do. Uh, but I want to force myself to uh, have to do something else, both creatively and uh, monetarily, I think. So uh, I'm doing things... Um, Looking at things, but you're probably right. I, I probably am, uh, yeah, holding on to security a bit too much. But uh, at the same time, I know myself pretty well, and I also know that once I go for something, I leave all the other stuff behind. And in this case, I don't want to necessarily. So I don't want to find. I don't want to find a new fire and kind of go. Oh, let's just leave wedding photography behind because that's not what I want to do right now. So for me, for the first time, I'm trying to hold on to a few things at the same time. So, home for you now is Byron Bay? Byron Bay in uh, Eastern Australia, yeah. So, when do you go back home? Uh, fly back on the 14th. Uh, have a wedding on the 18th in Australia. So, I'll be back on the 16th, and then I shoot a wedding on the 18th. Um, and then I have a pretty quiet August. Uh, I have a two, three weddings and a wor- workshop. And then everything kicks off in a crazy way again uh so september is then i start traveling around the world and and doing weddings and workshops and all that so september october is going to be completely bananas and november as well so um but i'm uh, i'm prepared for that or not you can never be prepared for it but i know it's coming so it's like it's trying to chill out now and then uh, i know it's what's going to happen it's just going to be complete uh, mayhem in september october so outside of um Outside of like your family and outside of the industry, the beast, um, do you have anything on the side, any projects or anything that are interesting for you that kind of keep you going? Or do you feel like you're consumed enough with those two main things? I've always envied people to have hobbies on the side. I don't. Uh, I've always put all my love and effort into what I do. So for me, it's been enough to, to have my job and to do that really well. Um, I like cooking, but it's not like it's a full-time hobby on the side, but uh, I enjoy cooking. Um, but you don't have any main, like, big projects, like a 365 or anything like that? or I did that last year. It was really interesting. Uh, did you finish the year? I didn't, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I shot the whole thing. I think I shot every day, so I have photos, but I just didn't post. <laughs> I just stopped yeah. posting uh, about 320 days in or something. Um, but I've just, uh, what we talked about before, filmmaking and all that, I... I I bought a really well. I bought a cinema camera, like a Canon's one of their cinema bodies, uh, to force myself to maybe go out and start shooting video and stuff. So, what would what would be like 
like it maybe it's too early to say but like what would be your your dream product or end product with film would it be a documentary would it be like a music video for a rap band like what what, <laughs> what sort of yeah. thing do you feel now might be a, like a great end product well the thing is uh it's interesting because i was never filmmaking was always my dream this has been my dream since uh i was 14 um and then i've just done other things to push that dream out and i think uh there's a, a really great book called The War of Art, um, and he talks about you say the thing you can't do uh, your whole life, that's probably the thing you have to do. And for me, that's been filmmaking and writing novels. It's been the two things I say I can't do. And then I've always found other things that circle around that. So it's been photography, it's been advertising, it's always been filmmaking in the background. Um, so for me, um, I don't know what, what what's going to happen with that, where it's going to lead to. I love... Uh, documentaries. I love storytelling. I love short films. Um, so I don't know. Um, it's too early to say, uh, yeah. and I don't want to sort of twist that arm too early either. So like, I'm just going to let it flow. And uh, it's going to sound all hippie again, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> Probably be as simple as what always happens. Some serendipity. You book something or you do something for fun, and then that leads on to something else, and then you find yourself all of a sudden, holy shit! Now I'm doing this for. Uh, so you never know, um, and I'm I'm trying not to look too far into the uh, crystal ball yet. It's just like it's I'm just gonna let whatever happens happen. Right now I'm just walking around with this uh, silly camera that I don't even know how to turn on. It's like I was looking at it the other day. I couldn't change the white balance on it. And I was like, I had to ask a filmmaker friend of mine. It's like, so it's just it's pretty funny, but uh, but it's also really interesting because I'm literally clueless when it comes to a lot of these things i'm like watching tutorials online and i remember how passionate so, so you're actively doing that now yeah yeah okay so you're like starting to blaze the trail a little bit for yourself for myself your personal work and all that but uh, not with a specific project in mind but what i do is i'm back to doing what i did when i was got into photography which is literally sitting watching tutorials and figuring out settings and stuff and and having and I'm sure you know how that was when you got into photography. There's the, the passion to, to learn. Oh, wow, blending modes. I don't know what that is. And so I'm sitting learning After Effects and stuff. And I'm like, and I'm like, and then I remember what it was being that clueless. And it's quite interesting. You sit there and kind of go, whoa, you could do that. I didn't know that. And, and all that sort of stuff. And, and I don't have that with photography anymore. Not that I'm the master, but my digital cameras, they don't surprise me anymore. I know what every setting does and there's nothing there that I can't figure out. So for me, it's interesting to have a tool that I hardly can turn on. It's like, it's so exciting, uh, which is also very frustrating, but it's, uh, yeah, it's good. It's cool. It makes me passionate about something again, which is a, a really good thing. Good stuff, Jonas. Let's wind it up there. No problem. Well, thanks for uh, chatting and uh, I guess enjoy Sweden. Yeah, thanks, man. Will you be back in Sweden again before October? No, uh, I'm shooting. Uh, no, sorry. All over. Yeah, I uh, I had a few requests to do weddings and stuff in uh, in Europe uh, around the time of uh, way up north, but I think in the end I do my own workshop in Toronto and then have to fly pretty much straight in. So, uh, so okay. One last question, then I'll let you go. The, yeah. You're a Swede. The events in Sweden. There's a shitload of people who are not from Sweden. Uh, yeah. including all the presenters and all that that are coming for the for many for the first time so what's the one thing that you recommend they do in Stockholm maybe something to eat or a shot or a club or I don't know anything wow um, 
that is uh I really don't know. Um it's interesting. Yeah, no, I don't know. Oh, man, um I've never lived in Stockholm, I should say that. So for me, I'm as much of a tourist there uh, as anyone else. Um I think that um uh, <laughs> yeah, enjoy the darkness. I think that's <laughs> All right, just take it in. Take in the, the bleak. Take in the bleak. Yeah, yeah. I think um, at first, I think Swedish people can come across as a bit standoffish. Uh, so maybe you need to lead them by the hand a bit. And I think Swedish people are extremely welcoming once you they open up to you. So uh, don't be afraid that people won't smile at you on the tram or subway or whatever. Um, you have to smile first at them. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just... Uh, uh, show them the way, I think, uh, and they'll appreciate you for it. So, so prepare for darkness, prepare for cold people, and uh, yeah. experience that. And oh wow, we're really selling Sweden. No wonder you live in Australia. No, but I'm here now, and I find that I smiled at someone in the <laughs> in the grocery store the other day for no reason. Like whatever, that's what you do when you live in Australia. And they looked at me like I was crazy. It was like, why are you smiling at me? And just looked the other way. And I was like, it reminded me that. But then you do that to people, and then Swedish people always say that about foreign people, like, oh, it's so nice when foreign people come here and smile at us. So it's like, well, let's, we should do that more. So I think uh, everyone who comes to way up north who are not Swedish, you see themselves as missionaries and just uh, <laughs> sm smile more at people. Uh, because, uh, but you know how it is. I mean, we, I'm not backstabbing my fellow Swedes, but it is, uh, they're a bit more guarded than um, yeah, other countries, I think, uh, when it comes to showing emotion. No, you're you're right. Uh, I, I agree. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, let's end it there. Thanks a lot for uh, for taking time out of your your vacation to to do this. Thanks for having me. And uh, catch you on the line. Yeah, cool, man. All right, man. Take care. Well, good. Bye bye. Bye bye. That is speaker ten of ten. We're really excited to hear them all at way up north in just over a month's time. And uh, in preparation for that, we'd like to mention one thing. We'll send this in emails to those of you coming, but uh, since repetition is the mother of all learning, we'll take it here as well. Uh, we will have registration for the conference at Frey's Hotel the night before the conference. So the 12th of October, between 6 and 8 p.m. And we'd love to see as many as possible of you there, since there will be a lot of people at the conference, and we'd love to avoid uh, long lines for registration in the morning of day one. So if you're around the night before, please come to Frey's Hotel between 6 and 8 p.m. for registration. If you have any other questions or thoughts, or uh, if you want to express your excitement or whatever, uh, the official hashtag for the event is WayUpNorth2015. We're really excited about the first Way Up North coming up very soon now, and we can't wait to see many of you there. So uh, talk and see you soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.